today's episode, we open our Bibles to Esther chapter 6. The tables are turning on Haman. While he relishes in all the honors King Ahasuerus has bestowed upon him, he plots the hanging of the Jew Mordecai, whom he hates. Unbeknownst to him, the king has happened upon a record of Mordecai saving him from an assassination plot, and in repayment for his good deeds, he wants to honor him. The king then instructs Haman to carry out this honor himself much to his own shame. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Next time you're online, I want you to head over to lhfmissions.org. Learn more about their publishing and translating work. Find out all the ways they help ministries succeed in spreading the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. They also have mission speakers that will come and speak with your congregation, so check them out. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, joining the conversation this morning is my guest, the Reverend Nick Koshman, pastor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Forest Grove, Oregon. Good morning, Pastor Koshman. Uh, I know that you were on with my predecessor a few times. I'm happy to welcome you back to the program. But seeing as this is your first time on with me, I was just wondering, would you take a few moments to share with uh, the folks at home what God is doing through you and your ministry there in Mount Olive? Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's good to be on the show again and uh, for the first time with you. Uh, I am pastor at Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Forest Grove, Oregon. I've been here for about eight and a half years now. Uh, prior to that, I was in uh, Trenton, Michigan. Uh, it is uh, wonderful serving out here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I, I never imagined ending up in Oregon, but uh, cannot imagine ourselves being anywhere else Um we are, you know, moving forward. I, I think everybody else, you know, in ministry is working on coming out of the pandemic and trying to figure out who is returning and who is not. And attendance is kind of stabilizing. We are also, uh, I, I'm excited. We've been working with uh, LCEF and their ministry clarity process just to help give us some direction with the church. And we actually have a, an event going on tonight with that. So things are are looking forward in ministry here at at Mount Olive and in our Forest Grove community. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I've never been up to Oregon, um, I guess. I mean, I've been all the way to the West Coast, but not up to Oregon way. I grew up in North Carolina, and now I'm here, here in Minnesota. Um, so what's the climate like up there? I mean, uh, you know, it's February, so is it is it warm there? Is it cold there? What's going on? It's it's. It's kind of gray and rainy. It's, it's interesting. When I first moved here, the, the first winter here was a little bit a little bit rough, I guess. Uh, you know, we had come from Michigan, so we were used to cold and snow, but it's not as cold here, but it, and it doesn't rain, rain all the time. It just kind of mists and like spits a little bit. And I remember telling my wife, our first year here, I just said, everything is always wet. <laughs> and, and she said, yeah, but there's not, you know, 90 inches of snow all winter, you know, throughout the winter. Yeah, but the snow comes, you shovel your driveway, the sun comes out, you see the blue sky and your sideway, your sidewalk and, and your and your driveway dry off and you see dry concrete. Not here usually. The, I mean, it's, it's actually fairly nice today, but, you know, the ground is still 
wet. Sidewalks are still wet. But once we get to, uh, you know, May or so, the God turns off the spigot and uh, it is absolutely beautiful here. Uh, but I have now gotten used to it and I've just adjusted to the to the climate, to the Oregon winters. And it's just part of life. Now. Well, now the real question that listeners are wanting to know is, have you seen Bigfoot up there in the Pacific Northwest? Not, not quite, but, uh, my, my kids, uh, keep an eye out for them every time we go on. A <laughs> I bet they do. Well, brother, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Uh, before we dig into our text though, I'd like to invite you to begin us off with some prayer. I would love to. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this chance for us to dig into your word, especially this book of Esther. Thank you, Lord, for Esther, for Mordecai, for the work you did in both of them. Help us, Lord, not to place ourselves first and to think of ourselves first and foremost, but to to think of others, uh, to uh, place the needs of others before our own and to seek to do good work regardless of whatever praise or recognition we might receive. Be with us now as we dive into this passage and see where it takes us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I tell you what, why don't we just go ahead and dig in? Um, but before I read any text at all, uh, maybe catch us up for those who perhaps missed the last episode, uh, where have we been so that we know where we're going? So Esther, you know, the, we discover this plot of Haman to uh, destroy all of the Jews and, and Esther agrees to intervene. She uh, approaches the king risking her own life, but the king loves her, is smitten with her and says, you know, he will grant whatever request she has, even up to half his kingdom. And her simple request is that the king and Haman attend a banquet that she is going to be holding. And Haman is so excited about this. Uh, he and, and he's getting ready to head home. He is high on the hog. Of course, as he leaves on his way home, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, as we saw earlier uh, in this book, uh, doesn't, doesn't rise when uh, Haman passes by, doesn't uh, fear him isn't trembling before him and and Haman is having none of this despite the the honor he receives from the queen and from the king uh he cannot stand to be dishonored by Mordecai and he goes home and he is just seething with rage and he tells uh his wife and his friends all about how great he is uh but that this Mordecai guy just will not uh will not honor him and they may say uh yeah, that, that, you know, the, the solution is that don't just wait to kill all the Jews here, you know, build some, don't just build gallows. Don't just get a rope, get a rope and I get a really long rope and build these gallows that are 75 feet high. And, you know, in the morning, go and ask the king, uh, if, if you can hang, if you can hang Mordecai. And so that's where we are left off at the end of chapter. Well, five. and I just couldn't help, but be. <laughs> you know, amused. I mean, obviously this is a very uh, negative situation. Here's a guy who hates Mordecai, but he hates him so much that he hates anybody who might remind him of Mordecai. So he's going to destroy all the Jews. I mean, obviously that's a horrible thing, but the, it's, it's dripping in irony because as you pointed out, as we talked about uh, yesterday, the, the uh, he's, he's relating all of these amazing ways, which he has been honored, his promotions, all the, the great things things the king has done for him the queen has as preparing a special banquet and and it's just this one kind of know nothing 
random uh, official who doesn't like him, and he just can't let that go. And so, as you're right, we're right here at the precipice, and he says, all right, fine, I'll just hang Mordecai. Not that he's going to give up trying to destroy all the rest of the Jews, but he's certainly going to go ahead and take the advice to kill Mordecai. But, man, it just shows the pettiness, and he can't even enjoy what are clearly some temporal blessings uh, because of this. It's it's almost like those star athletes, regardless of whatever sport, maybe they've won the championship, received an MVP, and they just cannot get over the guy who was drafted earlier than them. And so they always have to point out that, hey, I've achieved these things, but then there's this guy here and it just sticks in their craw that somebody at one point, you know, was seen as before them or doesn't cower before them. Uh, yeah, and so it sets up the, this great reversal that we have coming in chapter six. And chapter six is chock full of um, what we would call providence, something that we don't think about a lot today. I think we, we we think of it, unfortunately, as fate, which isn't a Christian idea, or we think of it as serendipity or just coincidence. But a lot of what's going to happen in this chapter is going to really be kind of convenient. Like if, if you were making up this story as an author, let's say it was fiction, you might be tempted to say, you know, all of these things coming together are, are pretty unrealistic, except when God's behind the scenes, he makes all of these things which uh, separately really start to seem connected. So if it's okay with you, brother, I'd like to go ahead and begin reading. Um, I think I'll start with just the first three verses. Uh, so folks will be reading from Esther chapter 6 from the English Standard Version. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. I think we'll stop there. So we see here that uh, he's reading through. <laughs> I love this picture, though. So he's tired, but he can't get to sleep. He has insomnia. And I suppose he can't just flip on the TV. So he says, and he's it actually, he's kind of like uh, Haman in this way. He says, bring the book of all the great things about me and read them to me while I go to sleep. Uh, I think that's kind of a, an interesting and humorous setup. But uh, take us into that. What's going on? Yeah, so it opens up with, you know, on that night. And of course, when you're just jumping into a chat, you say, well, 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 what night? And not just the night that, that, that Haman comes home and is, is complaining to his family, but it's between these two banquets. They, there had been the first banquet that Esther had requested the King Ahasuerus and Haman attend. And at the end of that banquet, uh, King Ahasuerus says, make any request and I will give it to you. And she requests that they attend another banquet following night. So it's still on that first night of that first banquet. And the, the king can't sleep. And of course, yeah, as you mentioned, there are any number of things. I have I have the Calm app on my phone and I like to, you know, either listen to the history of the Transformers or uh, uh, there's uh, some Peppa Pig bedtime stories that are that are really good and just kind of help ease me into sleep. And 
And I don't know if King Ahasuerus was planning on hearing of his great deeds and and getting excited about them, or if he thought, you know, they were going to pull out one of the, the the more boring books in, you know, the chronicles of of everything that happened, you know, with a lot of perhaps a lot of uh, 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 genealogies. And he might just drift off to sleep. But uh, yeah, the, the the book that they pick out isn't your typical boring read, and it's fairly exciting and it and it recounts all of the deeds that Mordecai did back in uh Esther chapter two when he uncovers this plot uh of these two men, these two units who are planning on uh killing the king. And the king asked, yeah, what honor or distinction uh was was given to this man? And it's it's rare that a, a great deed like that would go unrewarded. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've done some reading and, and Persian kings, especially Ahasuerus, were, were known for immediately uh, rewarding people who had done great things or who had helped him out. And so the fact that it's been uh, several years since this took place and nothing has been done to, to honor Mordecai is quite striking. Yeah, it's striking. And as I said earlier, we could chalk it up to coincidence. So Mordecai does this great thing. And for those who may not remember, we did talk about this back in Esther chapter two, verses 21 through 23 go as this. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this is coming back up. And as you said, a lot of time has passed. And so we see he just happens to be reading, or he just happens to not be able to get to sleep. He happens to call for this book to be read. They happen to pull out something that involves Mordecai, who, and we're getting ready to find out, We just Haman just happens to be coming by and to talk about Mordecai. So all of these things are just sort of falling into place. And I think that's fascinating, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But you brought up an important point, which is that typically kings would, would honor people right away. It probably for a practical reason, if, if, you're a, if you're the king of Persia, you probably just want to get these things taken care of and, and that way off your plate and you don't have to worry about it. So it's like, let's honor people immediately. Well, why didn't uh, Mordecai get honored? And we're not told, but we do know that it's a good thing that he didn't. It's a good thing that he didn't get honored a couple of years ago because then he wouldn't be in the position of being honored now, which is what happens in the rest of the text. I mean, it, it, it's providential. We're, we're thankful to God that he didn't get honored. And it kind of reminds us of sometimes when we get real frustrated with uh, not being recognized for something, you never know. Maybe the timing isn't right. Maybe God has a, a bigger view of history than we do. Yeah, and you can see here, you know, the, the difference in the character of Mordecai and Haman. Of course, you know, this is kind of reading into what's not in the text, but we don't see Mordecai stewing about saying, oh, I did this great thing for the king and he never even said thank you. He's not stewing about it. Just like we'll see later, you know, hey, uh, Mordecai does his job. He does a thing or, you know, later he gets praised. And what does he do afterwards? He simply 
goes back to work. He's, you know, this is what I was supposed to do. Anybody, if they heard a plot against the king's life, hopefully anybody would do the right thing and inform the king in order to save his life, regardless of whatever praise you would see, you would receive simply because it is the right thing to do. Absolutely. And it also makes the, their differences in characters between Haman and Mordecai also makes what Mordecai does that much more deliciously ironic, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Um, are you ready to move on to maybe a couple more verses? Let's right. do it. And the King said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the King's palace to speak to the King about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, well, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, oh, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, yeah, he just happens to come by right as um, the king is thinking about honoring Mordecai and he's there to talk about hanging Mordecai. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, an amazing picture that's being painted. Yeah. So we sing, we see King Ahasuerus, uh, wanting some input on how best to honor him, whether he thought it was beneath him to, to think of a proper reward or just, he wanted to make sure that after all this time he got it right. So he, yeah, he asked who was in the court, who could help give me uh, some advice on how to honor Mordecai. And we don't know the exact timing of everything. Uh, we're not told that the king ever made it to sleep. Perhaps he hears this story and it is excited. You know, it's a, it's a riveting story and he's excited to reward Mordecai. And so probably doesn't get back to sleep. So we're late into the night that, that, uh, that King Ahasuerus never falls asleep. And also, Haman had been at his house stewing with his friends and his wife about this. So Haman is now coming in. We, you know, so we're, we're late at night for the king. We're really early in the morning uh, for Haman, you know, excited to get to work, to, to plot to kill Mordecai on his big, huge gallows. And, you know, the king stayed up just late enough and uh, Haman came in just early enough that their paths end up crossing and people see that Haman is, is in the courtyard. And, uh, yeah, he's there to ask for permission to kill Mordecai. And they, they tell the king that Haman is there. And so, he, uh, the king summons Haman and Haman comes in and he, I don't know what, what would have been better if, if Haman would have been a little bit more impulsive and not waited for the king to speak and to see what would have happened if the first things out of his mouth had been, Hey, I want to kill that Mordecai <laughs> right. guy. Or, if, or if Haman had been glad to be like, Ooh, glad. Glad I was silent for a second and let the king speak first. You know, it, as tough as it was for him to hear that, he probably was glad that that wasn't the first thing out of his mouth. Well, if, if of course, he had spoken first, not only would it be interesting to hear what would have happened, but we wouldn't have gotten what happened later when he has to then honor Mordecai, who he's immediately, that, that same day, was trying to kill. And, and in, in chapter 5, verse 14, which is you know what we just covered before we began chapter 6, you know, yeah, his wife Zeresh says, let this, you know, gallow 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. So in my mind's eye, and again, this is speculative, I, I, I feel like, yes, I think King Ahasuerus 
maybe excited, maybe also a little bothered. Like, I just can't believe this went un, un, you know, this guy went unrewarded. And so he's, it's pretty early. And the fact that Mordecai is, is coming into work early, so to speak. And meanwhile, I don't know if it's that King Hashuerus, like hears somebody in the courtyard and it's like, you know, who is that? Or maybe he's just saying, um, well, is there anybody out there? I, I need some advice on how to reward this guy. And it happens to be Haman. Either way, God is the one who brings these people together. And, and he goes in probably just excited. Also, also, I also think that uh, that Mordecai likely had this gallows built 50 cubits high overnight. And so he might be trying to get to the king before the king notices a 75-foot gallows. <laughs> what's, what's, what's that there? And you have to think, what is, what is Haman thinking? Because he's probably thinking that everything is working out providentially for him because he has come, you know, he gets into the office early, uh, but is probably thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to sit around and wait for a while before I have an audience with the king. And right away... The king summons him. He's like, oh, this is great. Everything is working out my way. I've come in early and the king is already looking to, to, uh, to, to speak with me. Hopefully my, my friends or whoever I've got, my worker bees, you know, back at the house are, are steadily building that gallows and it will be ready to go at any moment. Well, and what we have here is sort of a reverse, a Tachayish moment. You know, we think of, uh, Nathan and, and we think of him saying, you know, um, uh, telling uh, the king, you are right, the man telling the king, you know, well, how should we punish this person who does this bad thing? And, you know, the king's very angry and he goes, aha, you are the man. Well, here we have just the opposite. How should we reward this amazing man that I'm thinking of, but not telling you who? And Haman's just like, oh, oh, yeah, this guy's talking about me. I, I Who's going to be better than me? Of course, he's talking about me. Um, what arrogance, right? What pride? And you, you wonder, you wonder if, uh, in the end, Haman wouldn't have wished he had spent a little more time in the Proverbs and, you know, reading Proverbs 16, 18, you know, saying pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall and just kind of pump your brakes, dude, slow down. Uh, uh, but yeah, he, he's really, really setting himself up. Yeah, it really, I mean, it's just like a straight man in an act uh, because he's setting him up and what happens next, of course, um, well, proves it. Why don't we read just a few more verses? Uh, we're going to do verses 7 through 11, and then we'll, we'll start to tackle that, but then we'll go to a break. So here we go. Chapter 6, verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor... Oh, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Well, hurry and take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That's the end of verse 10, which we're going to stop right there, folks. Don't go anywhere. 
in just a few minutes when we return, we're going to see what comes of all of this as we continue our study of Esther chapter 6. We'll be right back. See you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me this morning is the Reverend Nick Koshman, pastor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Forest Grove, Oregon. Now, if you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, you know what I'm going to say. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me a message uh, that way. Also, thank you so much for listening. I don't know if I tell you that enough. And also, thank you for telling others about Thy Strong Word. They can hear us on the air, on demand at kfuo.org forward slash Thy Strong Word, or through their favorite podcasting app. All right, Pastor Koshman, before we were uh, heading to break, I had just read Esther 6 through uh, 10, and this is where the other shoe drops. You know, Haman has given all this great advice of all these wonderful, honorable things that the king could do to this man whom the king wants to honor. Of course, he thinks it's himself. And then it turns out it just it couldn't be worse for Haman. It turns out it is his enemy that is uh, the Jew, Mordecai. And now he, not only is he going to be honored by the king, but he has to do the honoring. And that's also... Haman asked for that. He said, pick a high official to walk before this guy and tell everybody how great he is. I mean, the irony here and just sort of the revenge on the pride of Haman is just palpable. It's amazing. Yeah, so in in verse 6, the the king asked what should be done, and here's kind of a key phrase here, uh, to the man whom the king delights to honor. And as excited as Haman was to come to the king and to make this request for Mordecai to be hanged, you wonder if that didn't jump to the back of his mind because he has a chance to think about himself and how great he is because he says, wait a minute, who, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And, and Haman picks up on this phrase the king used, the man whom the king delights to honor, and he uses it all throughout his description of what should take place. And part of the reason he was probably doing that was to reinforce in the king's mind, yes, this I am someone whom you delight to honor, but you also wonder if it wasn't just building himself up, like you almost saw him like throw a little bit with each time he said it, he just got bigger and bigger and more full of himself and more excited. And he can't help but but give this laundry list of all of these things that should take place. 
Right. And you know what? And you, you said he's building himself up and I absolutely agree with you, but I also think it's kind of like humble bragging or a false sense of modesty. So he's, he's not saying me like it, the whole thing would have fallen apart if he would have said, um, yes, here's what you can do for me, King. I mean, he's not going to say that, but he, he's trying to reinforce it as you said, but he's also being f- in a, in a fake way, humble. So he's like, oh, yes, this man, wink, wink, whom you're going to humble, who you delight, I'm sorry, honor, who you delight to honor, you know, wink, wink, we know it's me. So it's like he's also being prideful while trying to be humble. I mean, he just can't get anything right. And and I like how you. Yeah, I like. Go what, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I like what you said. I like what you said there about the, the humble brag that he's as excited as he is and as eager as he is and as full of himself as he is, he at least has enough, I don't know if shame is the right word or uh, at least false modesty to, to temper it just slightly and just say, oh, yeah, well, the man whom the king delights to honor, and we all know who that is, uh, yeah, poor given his laundry list of things. Well, and I just, I, I do, I, I get this picture of him just, uh, just beaming with pride because we already know that's what he does in the previous chapter. He's going on and on about all of his great accomplishments and the king, you know, summons him in there. But you brought up something else that I hadn't considered. And that was that because of his pride, all of his, I don't know, his, his, his aim, his goal to hang Mordecai immediately went to the back of his head. He didn't say like, you know, oh, hey, King, uh, listen, I'm going to let you finish. But first, <laughs> but first, you know. Yeah, first, let, yeah. let me, here's why I, I got a bunch here. of guys out here working on this thing. If they don't hear back soon, you know, we're going to have a 75 foot monstrosity in front of the palace. So, so he doesn't though. You're right. He almost absolutely just forgets about it. And he just thinks, how can I be honored? And, and I think that's an, I mean, I know I'm reading into it, but it's an interesting display of his character where um, his love of himself is even stronger than his hatred of Mordecai. That just shows you how deep his pridefulness is. And I guess how damaging pridefulness could be for all of us. Not that we should hate our enemies more than we love ourselves. But what I'm saying is it just shows you how these sins are, are similar. You know, his hatred of Mordecai is really unjustified. So what? This guy doesn't like you. It's not going to be the last guy that doesn't like you. But this guy that doesn't like you is going to lead you to kill all the Jews? That's a hatred that is beyond understanding. And now we have pride that's kind of beyond understanding. And we as faithful Christians should avoid both. Well, and as we go into his list of, I don't know, demand or his list of suggestions, it makes me think of, uh, what Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you wonder if, not that obviously this had not been written quite yet, uh, but if, if Haman had that sort of idea in mind, if his list of suggestions wouldn't have been so Taylor fit to him that if they would have been a little bit more generic, perhaps the bitter pill he has to swallow later uh, wouldn't be so bad. But but how about we get into uh, the the list that he he comes up? Yeah, with. let's do it. Uh, the 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 first thing he suggests is he says, uh, you know, "Let the royal robes which the king has worn 
and the horse that the king has ridden on whose head a royal crown is set. So the first thing he says is, you know, get, get a royal robe and not just any robe, not just a beautiful robe, but one that the king has worn. And that made me think of, you know, people have NFL jerseys or, or jerseys from other sports. And sometimes they might not even have just the cheap ones that you can get at Walmart, but like the official ones that are just as high quality uh, as the ones that the players wear. But there's a step even above that. There are some people who have game-worn jerseys, that this is a jersey that so-and-so won during the Super Bowl or when when they threw their 500th touchdown. And it's it, it's this spectacular uh, item, and it's a great honor to have it and to be able to wear it. And, and he asks for the, the, the king's horse, not just the king's horse, but a horse that the king himself has ridden so that this would be a, a great and majestic horse. And I think this would be uh, similar to if somebody had done a great honor for the president and the president said, hey, when you bring this guy home, let him ride in the beast, you know, let him ride in the president presidential limousine or or as he has to fly home, let him ride on Air Force One. So not only would it be a wonderful and comfortable and incredibly safe <laughs> uh, flight or ride, it would be a great honor that you are riding in this thing that somebody with such high prestige has has ridden in, but also very few other people um, have. And to kind of, you know, I guess maybe put the cherry on the top. He's like, oh, yeah, you know what? And uh, uh, give the horse a hat. Right. <laughs> he, he says that put a, a royal crown, you know, set upon his head. And one of the things I was reading says that uh, some people have said that this is something that that archaeologists or, or skeptics of the, the Bible uh, have said, oh, well, this is just a ridiculous thing. Uh, you know, nobody would ask for a, some sort of crown or headdress to be placed upon a horse, but that archaeologists have uncovered Persian artwork uh, showing a king's horse with some sort of headdress or some sort of crown on it. So just one of those things that says, yeah, like, actually, even though we didn't may not have known this before, this sort of thing did happen. And we do have historical uh, finds that point to these sort of things uh, taking place. Right. You, well, but, I was just going yeah, so, to piggyback on that. You know, there are Assyrian reliefs, as you've pointed out, depictions from this era and from this area uh, that depict, you know, crown-like things, hats, <laughs> headdresses on horses. Um, so it makes sense. You know, they're not going to put, see, it actually makes more sense than putting a crown on Mordecai because they're not going to put a crown on Mordecai. I mean, the king's not going to do that. The point, and to mm -hmm. use your illustration, uh, if you ride on Air Force One, you're coming off Air Force One with, you know, whatever napkins or <laughs> ashtrays or whatever you can stuff in your pocket that have Air Force One written on it so you can show people, hey, like I was on Air Force One. Well, just a horse is not going to communicate anything to anybody. The horse has to be marked in some way that this was a horse upon which the king had ridden. That was the, the suggestion by Haman. And so it actually makes sense that the the horse is going to wear some sort of headdress that says this is a royal horse right and all of that still not enough it again looking at it just through Haman's eyes all of these honors that he wants to bestow on on this you know the man whom the king desires honor whoever that may be all of that's not enough it's not enough for this person to be lifted up and honored in order to 
truly, truly feel honored. Somebody else, probably somebody important needs to be brought low. So it's not just enough for this to happen and having some normal servants take care of dressing up this person whom the king delights to honor. It needs to be, uh, he, he says, uh, and let the, ro- let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man. So the, this man, the king's most noble official, has to carry the clothes over to the horse and to this man whom the king delights to honor. He needs to dress this man whom the king delights to honor. And he needs to lead this man on the horse throughout the square, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And again, going back to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, that if Haman had not just been thinking about himself or so highly of himself or what he may have wanted, but even genuine looking at what might other people think of as an honor, he may have come up with a completely different thing, but he is really, really setting himself up uh, for humiliation. Yeah, and that is the best part, I think, of all of it when he says, and take your highest official. Now, he's the highest official. I mean, he is the prime minister, so to speak. He's the highest official next to the king. But because he thinks he's the one being honored, he has no problem saying the highest official. It's the guy right under him and probably the guy. And he wants to create, perhaps create a little bit more space between him and, you know, he's number two. And I I don't know how exactly close number three is. This is going to really help create space between me and number three. Precisely. And I just, and that's just, so it's amazing. And of course we, as the readers, and that's another thing too, when we're reading this, we have to be careful that we don't jump ahead having previously read it, you know, try to read it as if you don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, do we know, um, as he's he's saying these things that it's that it's a uh, Mordecai. Well, yeah, we do because we heard that Mordecai was the one being honored. So we're in on the joke, and so whoever wrote Esther is is actually not just like telling us of a situation when Haman was humiliated. They're continuously showing the shame of Haman, even to, well, obviously to this day while we're reading it. I mean, it's one thing to be fooled, but then for us to all be on the, in on the joke, so to speak, while Haman is going on and on and on about how this guy is going to be honored. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. And so thus it makes it, ahead. it makes it that much more satisfying. So with verse 11, it says, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh, could, I don't I don't know if you could kick yourself hard enough. And and you he must have felt like a horse's rear end doing that. I mean, this is a guy who just hours earlier, he was there to try to execute. He's been spending all his time trying to execute and he himself is walking him through the square, telling people how great he is. You know, it, it obviously we don't have inflections when we read this kind of stuff. We have to interpret it. But I just imagine the the phrase, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor is being said through gritted teeth. Uh, Haman's furious, I'm sure. There are a number of 
scenes throughout the Old Testament that I, I wish I could have been there for, that if you could just transport me, I could witness. I think still top of my list is Elijah on Mount Carmel uh, and in 1 Kings 18, but, but verse 10 right here, just that Haman's going with this description and he's building himself up. He's, he's probably like levitating an inch or two above the ground. He's so excited. And just that the king says to Haman, hurry, robes and the horse, just as you have said, go to Mordecai. <laughs> it's Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew sits at the gate. He's not even this high official. The, the guy, yeah, who, who's sitting down by the gate, do it to him. And by the way, leave out nothing that you have mentioned and just you know, how good of a poker face did Haman have? <laughs> it's like, that's a did, great did, idea. Haman. Was he able to <laughs> just, yeah. And then having to do that. And again, going back to the uh, idea of not looking uh, to your own interest, but for the interest to others, I think if you came to me and said, Nick, plan out, you know, and maybe if it was nice and just, hey, plan out your perfect party. Or if you came out and said, hey, uh, you know, plan out a party for one of the greatest pastors <laughs> we've ever had. And all these things, I, I just assumed you're talking about me. Well, I might plan out this great party that somebody else really isn't going to enjoy. You, you wonder what Mordecai oh, must have felt yeah. like Well, you know, did he, he enjoy it? You know, was, was, did he feel honored by this? Again, I, I think of my wife and I, you know, very different people in some ways. I'm a big extrovert. She's a big introvert. If I planned out a great party that I would enjoy and then I would feel honored by even, you know, putting a good construction on it, not vainly honor me, but you know, within reason, I think she would be horrified to put herself in my shoes and go through what I might want to go through. But so this, you know, it, it does, does Mordecai feel honored by all of this? Does he feel why am I up on this horse? This is so weird. And why is the horse wearing a hat? And why is, why is Haman doing these things? Uh, or, or is he amused by it? Is he like, Hey, that's the, that's the guy who walks through the street, who always gives me the stink eye whenever he walks by, cause I'm not standing. Look what he's having to do now. And, and it's almost as if the, the impact of this event, yes, it, it elevates Mordecai and it praises him, but even more so it just grinds Haman down. You know, it, however many notches Mordecai is raised, either in the eyes of the people or in his own eyes, I believe pales in comparison with, with the number of notches Haman feels like he has dropped having to do all of these things to Mordecai, well, the Jew right. who sits by the and gate. And I love that because you, as you pointed out earlier, that's how he's described. Not Mordecai the official, the one you don't like, but Mordecai the Jew. And Mordecai's not dumb, and, and I, I'm certain that because, you know, you have Haman going around spreading all kinds of stuff, getting or his, his lackeys anyway doing this, getting information, he knows, he knows that, he probably knows that those gallows he hears being built or could very possibly be for him. The word gets around quick. And so, and again, this is all speculation, but I imagine either uh, Haman or one of his, uh, his servants shows up and they're like, you know, well, Mordecai, it's time. And he's like, oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, this is it. This is the end. And they're like, here, put this robe on. 
here, you know, and, and, and yeah. we start to kind of see some connections even to Christ, except the, the situations are inversed. You know, Mordecai is elevated in a way that was not expected in the same way that Christ was, you know, put on a purple robe, given a crown and elevated in a way that people didn't expect upon the cross. And while Mordecai gets honored uh, through Christ's elevation, of course, we are honored. But yeah, and just thinking through Mordecai's brain, though, I don't think he would have been able to process it. I bet he was still processing it days later. But you would have to have the resilience of, I don't know, just just an amazing disposition not to gloat a little bit that the guy who's literally trying to exterminate all of your people because you wouldn't stand up for him is just parading you through town, blessing you with the king's blesses. I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's amusing to think about. Or would Haman have preferred it if Mordecai were gloating over him? Because that would give him more reason hate him that yet like if you know mordecai were sitting up there making snide comments and like hey uh, a little bit louder i don't think the people in the back heard you quite well enough you know you know uh, you know but but if mordecai again we don't know what this ride exactly looked like but if mordecai kind of in the character we see him just you know kind of sat on the horse and just went through the city because that's what he was told to do and didn't say anything if that was almost even more so keeping hot coals onto Haman's head that like, you know, how is he not more glorified in this or how is he not being nasty? I can't believe he's just sitting there not doing anything with this. I, I want more reason to hate him. Well, it's certainly um, if if Mordecai would have acted simply in this situation and he's not beyond it. Right. Just just because he's the good guy mm-hmm. in the story. He's he's a saint and a sinner. Uh, but if you're right, if he would have acted simply, uh, it certainly would have just reinforced uh, Haman's hate against him. Um, but we don't, obviously we don't know. We're just speculating, but it, but when your enemy, when your enemy doesn't act hatefully towards you or they do something nice or, or something, uh, notable, it almost makes you more angry that, well, wait, you're, you're not acting the way I expected you to act. I, I wanted to have another reason to hate you. I wanted you to be mean or nasty because then it could, then I could really, you know, really feed on that and really feed my, my inner rage monster. Uh, but if Mordecai's just sitting there, it all in. Well, there's yeah. a lot of obedience going on here too to the king Hashuerus or Xerxes, however we want to call him. So you know, obviously Haman, you know, his desire to be honored, his hatred of Mordecai, and by extension, all the Jews, is um, once again, uh, I guess, put to the back burner because of his desire, I suppose, to keep his head. Because I just, it's hard for me to imagine, uh, as we talk about all the different scenarios here, it's hard to me, for me to imagine someone like Haman would have even done this. And obviously he knows better than to argue with the king. And the author gives us nothing in between. I, I think it would be safe to say that there was probably a lot of him slamming his fists in the walls and pacing back and forth before he goes out to do it. But interestingly enough, we're not given any of that. Um, if almost just for the comedic effect or the ironic effect, it goes straight from you know the order to him keeping and obeying the order. And the same thing with Mordecai you brought up, which again, I hadn't really thought about. You brought up, you know, what is Mordecai thinking? He doesn't want this. There's no way he wants this. 
Um, but he's also being obedient to the king. The king says to do it, so I'm going to do it. And so here you have two men doing something that neither of them wants to do because the king told them to. Um, I don't know where to go with that, but I do think it's an interesting aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. So now we have the very last couple of verses, and this is going to be verses 12 and 13. Um, there are 14 verses in Esther chapter 6, but really verse 14 belongs with chapter 7, so we're, we're going to save that till tomorrow. Starting with verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Okay, so uh, a couple of questions there. You know, I certainly want to hear, you know, what you make of Zeresh's comment at the end. Uh, But I also think it's kind of interesting that he says he hurried to his house and then he told them what had happened to him. Like it's it's he's still just so inwardly focused that this whole event is all about him and not that he's going to go excitedly tell them what happened to Mordecai. But you could have phrased it that way. He could have went and said, oh, you should have seen what happened to Mordecai. But no, it's all about him. That's how navel gazing he is. Yeah, everything is all about him. And here is another place where we see the the difference between the character of Mordecai and the character of of Haman. That after this, you know, fairly noticeable event, you know, we don't know. Uh, we, you know, uh, Haman's friends are probably too busy, you know, running to and fro from the Home Depot or Lowe's getting all the lumber they need uh, to build the gallows. And they might not have seen what happened. But, but after all this Mordecai, what does he do? He returns to the King's gate. It's like, okay. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of cool, but, uh, all right, well back to business as usual. And, you know, you wonder if he even mentioned it to anybody else. Like, Hey, did you, uh, did you happen to see that? Did you see that guy on the horse? That was me. You might not have noticed me with all my fancy robes on, but those robes were the King. And, uh, I was the one wearing, and did you notice the horse, but, but Haman, did you yeah, notice the horse's hat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the horse had a hat. That's kind of a big deal too. But yeah, Haman. It says he, you know, he rushes home. He hurries home, and, and he's mourning. And he's well, maybe kind of like a horse, uh, not quite. But he also has his head covered. But no, not in honor like the king. Uh, he has his head covered uh, in shame, and his friends are still there. Again, whether they're there because they are the ones building the gallows, or because after this night of of plotting and scheming, they had. With uh, with Haman, they're excited to hear about what happened with Haman. That Haman went in; he was going to have this audience with the king, and they probably wondered, like, "Wait, weren't you going to come back with Mordecai? We just built this gallows for you." Um, but but uh, Haman just he he tells them, yeah, everything, not just that happened in general, but everything that happened to him. And then we're told that there were some wise men there. Not whether we don't know, like. Okay, the smart guys amongst his friends or uh, wise men were there, but just weren't speaking before or that additional wise men showed up. But not just the wise men, but his wife says, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. 
but 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 earlier it wasn't just um just Mordecai or Haman's friends that that said this. It's it's it was it says in in chapter five that it was uh then his wife and all his friends said to him at the end of chapter five. So his wife is saying this: Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And he mentions there that it is Mordecai the Jew, uh, uh, I believe earlier in there. But but this is some really grade A Monday morning quarterbacking uh, on behalf of his wife that she is all for you know uh, going for the two point conversion, and then when it doesn't happen, saying you really you really should have kicked the extra point. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, wait, 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 wait. You you can it's one thing to just Monday morning quarterback and say, yeah, you know what? Maybe you should have gone for it on fourth down or whatever. But when you literally told me earlier to do one thing and now you're saying, yeah, this isn't going to end well for you. <laughs> right. But, you know, wh- where was that advice? Where was that advice? You know, a few hours ago. And, uh, you know, when my pride was still a bit intact. There's one more piece missing. Uh, oh, go ahead. But the, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the, that her advice and maybe this is. Uh, just some recency bias of, you know, I've been, we've been in, at my church, we've been working through the book of Acts in our, our Bible study class, but it reminds me of uh, Gamaliel's advice in Acts chapter five, when some of the apostles are arrested and we're figuring out the, what, what to do. And Gamaliel says, well, look, it just, it, it does, it's not going to do you any good to, to oppose them. Uh, you know, look at all these other like false messiahs that popped up, they got killed and all their followers disbanded. If this Jesus guy is just another one of those, guess what? It's going to disband over time, but don't oppose it. Cause you know what, if, if you do, you might end up the, you might end up, you know, a, a, it's going to be a futile effort and you might even find yourself opposing God. So just almost kind of that same resignation of just, Hey, just let this run this course. And if it fizzles out, it fizzles out. But if you are going up against this guy, it's not going to end well for you. The only problem I see with what she's saying, now we know that God is with him. He, we know that when we talk about you know the Jewish people, or literally from the Hebrew, the seed of the Jews, we're talking about the people of God. Um, we know just by the fact of the, you know that the book is Esther, and, and we know that this is all going to come out in Mordecai's favor. So we know what she's saying is going to come true. But with that said, from her point of view, it doesn't make a lot of sense for her to say it because the king has given an irrevocable decree already to Haman that all the Jews are to be destroyed. And so it, it remains to be seen, like, did the king just, I mean, he's the one who said Mordecai the Jew. He said Mordecai the Jew several times. Did he just not make the connection between that and the fact that he had ordered the ethnic cleansing of all the Jews? Or Zeresh, when she says, you know, well, if this guy's a Jew, there's no way you can resist him. What do you mean, Zeresh? The king's going to wipe out all the Jews. It seems more probable that she would say, hey, listen, at the end of the day, he's a Jew. He's going to be killed, and you are still the prime minister. That doesn't seem to come out of her mouth. So I don't know. This also, it, it is very much like your Acts 5 uh, illustration because it's almost like a, a ordinarily um, uh, un, unreliable narrator. We have Zeresh. She doesn't believe in God, and yet she speaks the truth. Maybe we could even say because of all the providence that's going on, God is giving her the truth that's speaking 
through her. And I think that's that's worth considering. All right, so we are at the end of our time. So, folks, um, I really appreciate the Reverend Nick Cushman, pastor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Forest Grove, Oregon, for being my guest this morning. Um, thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. I, it, you know, it's when we do these shorter books like this, it's always a shame because you just want to keep going and see what happens next. But I guess we'll have to tune in tomorrow for that. Uh, thanks again for being on the show. I look forward to having you on again. Thank you very much for having me. And remember the three lessons we learned from this chapter. If you can't sleep, that's okay. Yep. Think of others when you start planning your party and not just yourself. True. And uh, it's okay to not be immediately appreciated. Those are you know, my three just very surface takeaways. But uh, when, I, when, I, when my wife asked me about party planning, I will just not think of myself primarily. I will try to do my best to think of others and see what it might be like if the, if the roles are are reversed and the next time I can't sleep, maybe instead of turning on the history of the Transformers on my call map, I'll pull out the book of all the great people. <laughs> there you I've go. Well, and always, <laughs> always ask, ask specifically who the party's for before you start giving ideas. Oh, well. That is a good well, idea. Dear Saints, please tune in tomorrow as we finish up the last verse of chapter six and move into chapter seven, when Esther reveals Haman's plot to King Ahasuerus. And you know those gallows that were built? We're going to see them again, too. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.